You all believe they used to sing this one as a song? I mean, this was in the Psalter. It was one of 150 psalms of praise, a hymn that the people of God sang as they gathered together. God alone is judge. And there's some challenging news in Psalm 50, but there's such good news here as well. And I think we could use a little bit of good news. Let me put a point on that by asking a simple question. Did anybody watch the debate this week? See what I did there? Debate. Our kids have been watching Hamilton. They've been learning a little bit about American history. So I thought we'll give a, a little daddy project then. Come on downstairs. And I want you to bring a clipboard and a piece of paper. Bring yourself a little pencil. I want you to listen really carefully and be very respectful. Listen for arguments and then counter arguments and then see if there are counters to those counters. And let's really see what, what this thing is made of. About 10 minutes in, my sweet daughter captured what we were all feeling. Daddy, can this please be over? <laughs> so, you know, I'll admit, I've been doing a lot of judging this week. To the left, to the right, to the up, to the down, and everywhere in between. In fact, if you were unfortunate enough to get onto the Facebook this week, you, you will have seen that the, uh, the, the newly donned honorary degreed legal experts are once again coming out of the woodwork with pronouncement A, B, or C about exactly who's right, who's wrong, and what you are obligated to believe. And yet it disturbs our souls. We see injustice in the world around us. It breaks our heart because that's God's heart. And if we look closely and carefully and honestly, honestly, we see it inside of us as well, in our own homes, in our own relationships, in our own hearts. And so from the resonance, Dr. Rishmaui asks a pointed and rhetorical question. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? He's quoting from the autobiography of the freed slave Frederick Douglass, who was mourning the death of his grandmother, who having served her masters her entire life was not even allowed to be with her family at her time of death. Will not a righteous God visit these things? I believe that's the same question that we are asking. And so he continues in his article entitled, You Want a God of Judgment. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? The question continues to echo, though, for more than just the past injustices of American slavery. Current crimes are sufficient. Reported by an unending 24-hour news cycle, the cycle that threatens to churn up our souls most days. It leads me to turn this question over and over again in my mind. Every headline I read about yet another sexual abuse victim coming forward, testifying to the abuse of a major Hollywood mogul or someone in power, or worse, by the victim's famous youth pastor and the church who covered it up. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? Every victim of political injustice who makes the nightly news, both abroad and at home, will not a righteous God visit for these things? Every report of a child who's been abused or traumatized in an immigration detention center for the last few years, despite the fact that most of us are only hearing about it now. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? Every day abortion mills are open in America, legally ending the lives of thousands of unborn children. Children never held, never loved, never even given the dignity of a name in most cases. 
Children we never think about because their lives are snuffed out behind the closed doors in sterilized rooms with white-gloved hands. Children known and named only by the all-seeing God. Will not a righteous God visit us for these things? You know I could go on and on because you know the crimes, the depredations, and you can't think too long on these things without shutting down for the day. It's all too much. In fact, one person captured the feeling well recently when he tweeted, being angry all the time is exhausting and corrosive, I know. But at this moment, not being angry feels morally irresponsible. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? This is both our question and it is our problem. For if we are honest, we do judge. We do judge others. We do make others other. Unlike God himself, we do not pursue. We do not take up our cross and follow. We do not lay down our life. But instead, if you are like me, we so often despise the lives of those whom we disagree with or discount or disdain. And then when we look inside, we realize that we too deserve that same judgment. So let's be honest because Psalm 50 is honest. God alone is judge. One commentator puts it this way, most psalms are beautiful prayers and songs to God, the sort you would love to sing in church. Yet Psalm 50 is actually unique. It can be understood as what we might call an oracular hymn, oracular as an oracle, a prophetic oracle to ourselves as we sing it in two parts, with the worshipers actually singing and praising God's pronouncement about how they should live and be changed as a part of God's covenant people because he is the king and the judge. It is amazing that this is one of Israel's worship songs. Therefore, we know that to be in church is to invite God the judge to set us straight by his own, not our own, standards. God alone is judge, God alone is just, and God is the king. So in 2020, with our judgments, no matter how educated they might be or not, and with judgments against us, the message of Psalm 50 is clear. We need to listen up, we need to let God work, and we need to let him be the judge. Now, there's only one way to do that, and the psalm opens with this way, with such emphasis that it is striking, that he is the judge and not us. Verses 1 through 6 are a a, a clinic in what it means that God is just, impartial, holy, good, that he shows up like a consuming fire, that he's powerful, and in all those things, trustworthy. The psalm begins with God summoning all, the heavens and the earth. No one escapes his eye. And we see the threefold names of God laid out before us. Mighty One, God, the Lord. We might miss this because a comma is missing in the ESV, but these are actually three addresses to God to put emphasis on his power and character. The last one there is Lord. It should be in all caps. Yahweh, the divine name of God. I am that I am. And so as we come today to sit under Psalm 50, to think about God's justice as a perfect judge, we should remember that with everything going on in our lives, and our city, and our nation, and our world, that every breath we take right now, every thought we think, every, every distraction we have, every temptation to nod off, 
All of these things are allowed and empowered because God himself sustains our life and our breath and our being. Every atom, every quark, every molecule, it is under his sovereign rule and command, and he is a just judge. So Psalm 50 begs the question, will we submit? Will we submit to his authority and to his love? Now, now here's what's interesting, family. This should be so freeing to us. Singing and believing Psalm 50 should be so freeing to us. God has not kept silent. He may be patient, but he's not asleep at the wheel. He won't wince at sin. He won't let injustice go unpunished. He is both patient with you and me, and he is impartial, for he judges according to his own perfect, infinite, and unchangeable standard. The problem that the psalm digs into as it excavates our hearts is that that's the kind of judging we want to do. We want to have it our own way. When it comes to our judgment, we want to be the master and commander of our own ship, exceptional and individual. When it comes to others, we want to be quick to pass the blame with a list of stacked justifications. Why can they not see that they're so clearly wrong? But when it comes to judgment shown to us, we, of course, want mercy and grace. In this way, Psalm 50 contrasts and clashes with the maxim of our world. You know, don't judge anyone ever for anything. My truth is my truth. Yours is yours. You know, just do no harm and don't judge. This could be summed up by the well-known 20th century theologian Tupac Shakur said, God alone will judge me. You have no right. No one has any right. What's right for me is right for me. And that's the end of the matter. And yet we know, don't we, that we all have standards and authorities. We all have a worldview. We all have some way. Everyone out in the world does. I don't care if you, you know, atheist, agnostic, whatever faith you are, everyone has some standard by which they judge truth or falsity. And it's either something that's subjective and relative and limited and finite and human, or there is an absolutely all-good lawgiver who not only provides law, but sees it through. That's why Romans 2 says to Jew and Gentile, you have no excuse. God is the judge, not us. So Psalm 50 exposes us. We are all summoned into the heavenly covenant courtroom of God. In those first six verses, we are all laid low before his holiness. And he appears in what we would refer to as a theophany, an appearance of God as a consuming, as a burning fire. Like in Hebrews chapter 12, nothing that is hidden. And we work so hard at hiding. We do so well at distancing ourselves from the truth and being you know, shrouded by false selves, nothing that is hidden will not be uncovered. He is the judge and not us. But the most startling part of this introduction to the psalm in these six verses hasn't yet been stated. The most startling part is this. We would expect God to gather and summon the whole world, the pagans, the heathens, the hooligans, the skaters, the snowboarders, my people, to gather all those guys together and judge them. 
while Zion, the holy city of Israel and the children of God, looked on self-righteous indignation, the chosen ones of God. And yet, in such startling fashion, it's the opposite of what we get. He gathers the nations not to judge them, but as witnesses, the heavens and the earth. All eyes are on God, but God's eyes are on Israel, his children, his people, his own household. And so as I was studying and wrestling through this psalm this week, it just it hit me, whoa, this is for us. This is for us to not be bogged down in lies about the world or ourselves, to not be bogged down in religion or, or you know, trappings or looking like we've got it all together when we're desperately in need of God's power and justice. 1 Peter 4.17 puts it this way, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey what? The gospel of God. And so I want us to see as we move forward into these two oracles where God's children are gathered and they're startled, they're surprised because, whoa, we're singing these things to and about ourselves. God wants to purify and cleanse and correct us. But the Lord's intention is not to destroy them, to crush them. God isn't some, you know, angry old white dude in the heavens with a huge beard and a lightning bolt on a surfboard. He's not, he's not standing ready to heap guilt and shame upon his children, but instead to, to lead them kindly to repentance in his justice as the ultimate judge. Now, this happens in two ways. Verses 7 through 15, God judges our superficial religion. And in verses 16 through 21, God judges our hypocritical religion. So in verses 7 through 15, what do we notice? They're making sacrifices. They're doing the work. They're doing the duty. They're being really religious. But there's a problem. The main thing, the only thing, the real thing that wells up in our hearts from grace is missing. Thanksgiving. They have external religiosity without heart change. And this is basically moralism. And so because it's a superficial religion, because they're doing the work, it puts them in, in a place where subtle as it may be, they start to judge God. How so? With the simple expectation of if and then. Lord, if we do this, then you must do that. If we are good enough, God will be in our debt. You see, these folks are superb at religious duty. Law-abiding religious citizens led by clean-cut religious professionals. And yet their hearts are far from the Lord because they're trying to make a deal with God. They're trying to barter with God. They're trying to barter on the justice of God before the judge almighty. If we're good enough, God will be in our debt. And if I do the right things and the right kind of religion and, you know, go through the motions and show up to church and do my tithe and, you know, don't cuss or chew or go with girls who do, then God owes me something. So the question of Psalm 50 to us now in this church is do we ever feel that way? How do we do it so subtly? and have these functional saviors, and make functional deals with God, do you feel like God owes you something? You know what, Lord? I did good things. I prayed enough. I was nice. So now you got to deal with my marriage. Deal with my kids or my grandkids. What happened to the dream job that I was wanting this whole time? 
The emphatic answer of Psalm 50 is that it doesn't work like that. God doesn't merely want our obedience, our duty, our sacrifices. He wants our heart. Because if he has our heart, if he has our affections, then those things will come. Obedience will come, but from a place of thankfulness and not transactional obligation. The Lord tells us, I don't need your stuff. Not only do I not need your stuff, but that's an insult to me. And not only is that an insult to me, but if you make me a means to your end, it will not end well. That's why we get that that striking sentence. You thought I was one like you. You thought you could come and do deals with the judge. It doesn't work that way. Now, this would have been a radical concept at the time in the region, the ancient Near East. One scholar, Tremper Longman, puts it this way. In the ancient Near East, gods were finite, they were regional, they were oftentimes like human beings writ large. And therefore, the gods had to be appeased. They depended on the sacrifices of the people around them for food, for energy, for their needs. Indeed, in the story of Gilgamesh, the epic that some of you are familiar with, there's a recounting of an occurrence after the great flood where the gods, because there was such a tremendous food shortage, almost starved. The gods almost starved. And they were so upset that the people hadn't stored up food to feed them after the flood that they came down and wreaked havoc on the earth. That's no justice at all. That's not who God is. And therefore, that's not how we are to interact with him. That's why the psalm says that if we do that, we'll be torn apart. Because mere duty, mere obligation, mere keeping of the law kills. There's no life in it. There's only life in the grace of God that overflows in thanksgiving. So the psalm would have us ask about our own superficial religion. And we all do it. We all struggle with it. Do we just obey out of duty? So often in the way that we treat God, say we love God, pray to God, is it really just a subtle bribe? That one kind of got me this week. God judges our superficial religion for our own good because he will not be satisfied with offerings when he made us and created us for our hearts. The second oracle, that's the first, is similar, but more intense perhaps. God judges our hypocritical religion. The point here isn't about moralism, external religiosity without heart change. The point here is about doctrinal profession without life change. And this one for me was a little bit scary this week because when I first got into Psalm 30, I went, oh, this is great. Cool. We've got God shows up. He's the judge. He's the king. He's the perfect standard of justice. And then the Lord speaks to his people and, you know, don't just bring your sacrifices. I want your hearts. Ah, and then we get the wicked. That'll be a great spot in the sermon to do this big compare and contrast. You know, and lead us to the gospel because, ah, the wicked are out there. And we're the one. And when you go in and study the text, you know what you find out? God is still speaking to his people. He's still speaking to the ones who have taken his covenant upon their lips. Doctrinal profession without life change. And what a danger for all of us, especially in our tradition, in our demographics, perhaps leaning and skewing a bit more intellectual, to know the right things about God but not know him, to have the right propositions about God lined up neatly and in a row 
and yet no life change. Indeed, in the case of the wicked, they're professing, but they're living however they want. I was sad this week when I found out that God is talking to me and to us. I was joyful at the same time because it reminded me of this, the work of Jesus in our lives. God will not only not be mocked, God not only wants my heart but knows my heart, but God cares for me enough to help me in those things. So it's funny, right? You read this little list in the back and you're like, that's not me. Look, I don't see a thief and entertain him. I don't hang out with adulterers. I'm not committing murder and doing X, Y, and Z, to which I would point you kindly, gently, and firmly to the Sermon on the Mount. Indeed, I think those last few verses addressed to the wicked should hit us pretty hard right now. In this day, in this time of heat and intensity and frustration and polarization, you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Do I murder? No, no, I don't do any of that. But what about writing people off? What about unfollowing? What about canceling? What about saying of other people, I don't like what they believe, they're wrong, their opinion's wrong, they're idiots, and functionally dehumanizing them by discarding them from your life? It's interesting, Facebook realized many years ago that they couldn't just let you unfriend people because that was too psychologically difficult. You can't just unfriend people, so they created this little button called unfollow. Unfollow means you can still be friends, but never see anything that they have to say because they're crazy, and all the stuff they post is crazy. So, boop, unfollow, but we're still friends. That's not the most superficial thing I ever heard of, and hypocritical, I don't know what is. And yet we live in a time where if we disagree, we don't see each other in the image of God. No, I just cancel you. I unfollow you. The opposite of what Jesus does. His judgment pursues and moves toward. Maybe you don't unfollow people, but maybe you're the sort of person who is just begging to be unfollowed because you're so unbridled and bombastic that it would be impossible to get a word in anyway. Christians are not allowed to do this. And I would just remind myself here, because, ooh, I am greatly tempted to set many astray. that in the same list in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, in the same list that Paul mentions, revilers, murderers, adulterers, the sexually immoral of any persuasion, you know who he also mentions? Gossips and slanderers. Buckle up for the next few months, folks. Let us tame our tongues in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because God says that if we don't, we are numbered among the wicked. And that's why there are consequences on their land. They should be shining forth like Zion and instead, there's no shining forth of anything. There's superficial religion, there's hypocritical religion and guess what? Our friends who don't know Jesus, they can see right through it. That's why God doesn't tell them, fix it, bootstrap it, get better, follow the rules. Here's a list of 10 things for a better life. He says, no, be more broken, more weak, more needy, and more dependent on me. Because in your weakness, in your honesty before the world, that we do struggle with superficiality and being hypocrites, I will make my power perfect. 
John said something to me this week that, that really got me in our prayer meeting. I've been thinking about it all week. He said the spiritually healthy church, that's what we want, right? Christ church. Spiritually healthy together, growing in the grace of Jesus. The spiritually healthy church is not one without problems. It's not one without hypocrites and superficial people. Because wherever you have humans gathered, there you have these two issues. It's not one without problems, but it is one where there exists a dynamic and robust life of faith and repentance. Turning from that which does not satisfy and is superficial and hypocritical and turning to Jesus and doing it together. And I would implore some of you who are older in the faith, who have been walking with Jesus a long time, who are my parents and grandparents in the faith, lead us on in this world of polarization and yelling and mudslinging and catfights. Lead us on with a dynamic and a robust, healthy life of saying, you know what? We need the judgment of the just judge because he's shown us who we really are. Turn from death, turn to life and believe. So we'll end here. Where do you most struggle? Superficial? Moralism? Or hypocritical, licentiousness, I know the right things, live however I want. Let's make it personal. Because only when we make it personal can we hear for ourselves that most powerful rhetorical question, will not a righteous God visit for these things? The answer is yes, and it's precisely why the author ends with the cross of Jesus Christ. The kindness of God leading us to repentance. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus, given to you as a gift, proclaimed over you, never to be taken away, sealed in the Holy Spirit, does not say that you and I will escape judgment. Not at all. The gospel does not say that you will escape judgment. Indeed, even those who die, fat, rich, happy, having done horrible things in life and never gotten their comeuppance. Even the unjust someday will stand before the king and give an account. No one will escape the justice of God. No, the gospel doesn't say we escape judgment. It presents us with a choice. And therefore, the only question is this. The only question of Psalm 50 in the whole Bible is this. Will you be judged on your own merit, your own religion, your own offerings, your own life? Or will you be judged on the finished work, the completed merit, and the love and cross work of Jesus Christ for you? Romans chapter 2 told us that God will render to all according to their works. So in the end, will we stand in our own works, or will we stand in the finished work of Jesus our Lord? I want to end with a quote from Brennan Manning who I sometimes like and sometimes don't. He's, he challenges me. Because even as I read this, and I think about the question, will not a righteous God visit for these things? And I remember the list of atrocities that Dr. Rishmawi read, or that we read through earlier. It is so hard to believe that grace is this good. But because God is the judge, and Jesus has been judged for you, this is all true. Judgment is heavy, Heavy for me. All the injustice we see around us is heavy. And yet grace is heavier still. Why? Because salvation is by grace through faith. 
Salvation is by the grace of God who judged his son through our trusting faith in that very one. And therefore, I believe that countless numbers of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, among these I shall one day see, perhaps, the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she was full of shame and could find no other employment but to support her two-year-old son. Perhaps one day I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with the grueling alternatives. At least that's what she thought at the time. Or the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. Or maybe even the insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. Or maybe the sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask, when the judge is just. Because then the voice speaks in revelation more loudly. They have washed their robes, all of them, and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The one who took our judgment and wrath. So that there they are. And there we are, the multitude who so wanted in this life to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of our lives' tribulations. But through it all, Jesus clung to us and we clung to faith. Faith and trust in the very judge who became bloodied for us, who makes our robes now white as snow. My friends, if this is not good news to you, Perhaps you have never understood the gospel of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are to us a just judge. How freeing that is. How freeing it is that we don't need to be our own law, our own standard, the master and commander of our own ship. What a foolish thing to think we could be when the seas are so completely out of our control. And so like a loving father, you come to show us you are trustworthy, you are the judge. And you will not let your children get away with either superficial religion nor hypocritical religion. No, Lord, you will bring us to the cross. You will bring us to the cross of Christ as we ask the question of ourselves, will not a righteous God visit these things? You have, you did 2,000 years ago. And you will when you come again. So Father, even as it is a struggle for me to believe certain things in the quote I just read, would you open our hearts to how big and amazing and high and deep and wide is your grace and love for us? Would you scandalize our law-keeping and do-gooding and hypocrisy with the kind of grace that was so costly that Jesus, you yourself, had to be put to death to bear the weight of our sin and completely atone for the wrath of God. And as we come to this table, Lord, would we see even more clearly, would we see even more truly, would we taste and see just how good your love is for us and how good the news is 
Lord, that you alone can judge. Amen.